listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Four years ago, Sasha Nadella took the helm at Microsoft. Under his leadership, the value of the company has tripled. Some would think it would be the first company worth a trillion dollars. The story of the culture and strategy refresh are told in a new book titled Hit Refresh. Sasha's co-authors were Greg Shaw and Jill Tracy Nichols. Both work with the last three CEOs at Microsoft and have had a great perspective on the ups and downs of the company. We'll tell you a little bit more about the authors. After serving as a speechwriter in the Reagan White House, Greg managed public relations at Microsoft in the 90s. Tom worked with Greg at the Gates Foundation in the 2000s, where he led local grant making and helped shape the foundation's early childhood initiative. Jill Tracy Nichols led communications for Steve Ballmer, and after a quick transition became Sasha Nadella's chief of staff. In this conversation, Greg and Jill discussed the importance of the culture refresh at Microsoft, one based on Carol Dweck's growth mindset. They talk about the challenge of meeting the unmet and often unarticulated needs of customers. Greg insists that this goes beyond just listening and involves a lot of active empathy. Greg and Jill also provide valuable tips on writing and publishing. Let's listen in. All right, Greg Shaw and Jill Tracy Nichols, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks for having us. Great to be here, Tom. Uh, Greg, it sounds like you're you're back in Oklahoma this week. I, I was just in uh, Tulsa myself. What are you doing in Oklahoma? Well, my daughter is here uh, auditioning at Oklahoma City University. Uh, I was I was born and raised here in Oklahoma, so it's nice to be back home for a little while. Where'd you go to high school? I went to high school in uh, Broken Arrow, which is a community right outside of uh, Tulsa, um, uh, the Broken Arrow Tigers. And how did you get uh, to Northeastern State? Uh, well, you know, it's an interesting story. My, uh, I, I was really the first in my family to, uh, to graduate college. Uh, some, some made attempts, uh, but I, and I was actually accepted uh, on probation, academic probation, because my my scores were so low. Um, I knew that I wanted to go to college. Uh, Northeastern was about an hour and a half from uh, from my high school, and kind of catered to you know lower income uh, uh, students, a lot of Native Americans uh, in uh, Tahlequah. It's the capital of the Cherokee tribe. Um, but it was a place that took me, a place where I could go and study journalism, which was what my passion was. Uh, and it ended up being a, a really great experience. What was it in uh, high school or college that made you think of yourself as a writer? It was really the only thing I could do. I was not very good at math and science and not even very curious, uh, uh, candidly, about math and science. Um, I loved reading Um uh, we moved around a lot as a kid, and so uh, having books and, and reading uh, was really my constant companion. And I wanted to be like the people that uh, that I read. Um, and uh, I remember watching Lou Grant on television. Some people will remember right. uh, this. It was a TV show, a drama about a newsroom in Los Angeles. And I wanted to be like those guys. Um, so, I, you know, I worked on the high school newspaper. Uh, you know, I got some encouraging feedback and I had really never gotten encouraging feedback before. And so, yeah, the notion that people, you know, would actually read what I wrote uh, was hugely, uh, you know, inspiring for me. 
So how does a guy uh, go from Northeastern State make it to uh, Washington, D.C. in the Department of the Interior? You know, I guess just a lot of luck. I, um, I had become the editor of the tribal newspaper, the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma paper, which was called then the Cherokee Advocate. Uh, it's, all, it's been known throughout history alternatively either as the Cherokee Advocate or the Cherokee Phoenix. Uh, but I was uh, a writer and editor for the Cherokee Advocate. The chief of the Cherokee tribe uh, at that time was a guy named Ross Swimmer, and he became the assistant secretary of the interior for Indian affairs. Uh, he went on to DC. I worked for a woman named Wilma Mankiller who became chief of the Cherokee tribe. Um, and, uh, eventually Ross asked me to come out and work as a writer for him, uh, in Washington, DC. And I figured I'll never get out of you know, never get out of Oklahoma if I don't take this opportunity and uh, moved out there, you know, for a job that I think paid $14,000 a year. So it was uh, uh, a huge opportunity, not a lot of money. Yeah, moving to the big city. Um, if we fast forward to 1994, I think we both moved to Washington State and you uh, had the opportunity to manage public relations for this startup in Redmond called Microsoft. Yeah, it was a, it, you know, it had gotten beyond the startup phase by, uh, by 93 when I, uh, when I was first recruited. Uh, but it was only five or 6,000 people still thought of itself as a, a startup by comparison. You know, Jill will know better than I, I think as probably 150,000, something like that now. So it's, um, you know, become a large company, but, uh, uh, which I guess is an understatement, but um, yeah, it was a it was a really exciting opportunity, and and uh, you know there I got to work with uh, a guy that still flew commercially uh, in those days, uh, Bill Gates. Um, you know, and, right? That was really that was really the beginning of a quarter century, sort of at or around uh, Microsoft and Bill Gates. Yes, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was it was quite a ride. So uh, we started the Gates Foundation in 1999. You you moved from Microsoft over to the Gates Foundation. Was it in like 2004? Yeah, it was something like that. I mean, I, I had a role at the uh, at Microsoft in creating what became the Gates Library Foundation prior to it becoming known as Bill and Melinda Gates right. Foundation. I, right. I I was uh, telling somebody this week when I joined. The foundation. It was. Um, it, it was. It was me and the program officer and 150 librarians. Yes, right. Yeah. Well, we started a little program uh, where we, you know, we wanted to get um, computers and the internet into libraries within uh, poor communities, and um, uh, I, you know, and it was a Microsoft program. And then Bill and Melinda said, "Well, this is really the role of." philanthropy. And so they started the Gates Library Foundation, which, as you know, became the Gates Learning Foundation, which then became the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Right. So I think the first project that I remember working on with you was um, was Bill's speech uh, to the 2005 National Education Summit on high school. So I think in the fall of 2004, you and I started thinking about that speech. Yep. That 
appearance and the uh, the amazing reaction that it created helped me begin to understand the really the power of the advocacy platform that the foundation became. Bill always learned through his speeches. Um, I mean, he had a lot of ideas. He did a lot of reading, uh, but the speech was always an exercise for him in really learning, uh, learning the content, learning the thorny issues. Um, and, you know, and he had a really great sense uh, once he did that learning of what he wanted to communicate, um, how he wanted to communicate it. And, you know, and he cared a lot about, uh, you know, using his platform to, you know, to generate a maximum amount of attention for the issue he was talking about. Jill, Tracy Nichols, you're the CEO of the Tracy Group, but you were the chief of staff for Satya Nadella. And before that, uh, we worked for Steve Ballmer. Yeah, that's right. It was an incredible time at Microsoft. Actually, I realized Greg and I have something in common. Um, I, too, only got into college on probation. So starting as a, a creative writing major and a theater minor and ending up working at Microsoft for Steve Ballmer and then Satya Nadella has been quite the journey. But you, So you went to school in, in upstate New York at, at Houghton College, right? That's correct. What did you study there? I majored in creative writing with a minor in poetry. Um, and then I had a, a, another focus on communications with really, um, which was code for theater. So my parents had no idea why I was going to college to study such silly things. And my financial advisor um, literally sat me down and said, just drop out. There's no way you're ever going to make any money or do anything in life. So since then, I've been invited back to give a talk on how to build a career. So it all worked out. No, I had my advisor uh, in engineering school told me that I was, wasn't smart enough to be an engineer, that I should just drop out. You got to love advice like that. Exactly. Um, so, Jill, who was it that made you think of yourself as a writer, as a communicator? You know, looking back, I have to say it was probably my mother. Um, she had always believed that it was my responsibility to stand up for what I believed. If I had an idea, I should share it. If I had feedback, I should give it. And I remember very early on in life in grade school, um, being upset with a product or something happened at the roller skating rink. And she said, well, you should write them a letter. And I'd sit down and I'd write various letters to different organizations with a point of view and perspective. And, you know, similar to Greg, I realized, hey, I, I like this. I think I'm good at putting ideas and words together in ways that have, you know, influence. And through the years, uh, kept doing that in different, in different circles. And I think one of the things that really influenced me in college was Annie Dillard's The Writing Life, wow. um, where book? she just talks. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And she just talks about the struggle and the, the, um, the hardship that goes into it. And she, she quotes somebody else in the book by talking about how uh, being a writer, um, some people go through life very happy and aren't writers at all. And I thought I can go through life very happy doing other things, but there'll always be this passion that's hard yeah. and that's worth it. And that's a worthy goal and that's worthy to pursue. 
Yeah, that's that's such a great quote. Um, for those of us that spend time writing, whether we do it well or not, um, the one thing I think we all have in common is that we believe that it's really hard, right? That it's just people ask us if you like writing and it's a, you have a strange answer to that question because it's something that you have to do, uh, but that is extraordinarily difficult, right? That's right. And it's, it's one of those things and, and I, I appreciated Greg's journey in, in writing hit refresh. And he would say, you know, I can only get four to six hours of high quality thought and writing in a day. And, and it's true. It's um, requires this intense focus um, and intense passion for a certain number of hours. And that's basically all we can get in in a day of high quality work. Uh, Greg, let's, let's dive into that, uh, that question about how and when you write. What have you discovered about yourself as a writer? Well, you know, I was in, in thinking about this interview today, I was thinking about sort of uh, when, I, when I started writing, which was uh, when I started you know, writing for publishing, which was in, in high school, I, I suddenly remembered that uh, I used to get my little Smith and Corona typewriter out. It was, you know, this was sort of pre computers. I, I, I was just on the edge of the computer coming along. And, um, so I get my little Smith and Corona uh, typewriter out and I would also get the daily newspaper. Um, and what I loved to do was to, um, type, multiple leads uh from the from the day's newspaper so i'd kind of open up the front page and you know typically a lead is you know you know somewhere between 20 and 40 words the opening sentence of uh of a news article and i remember just wanting to know what it felt like uh to type out what a real professional writer uh had written you know that night before or or the day before or something and um, so it was, you know, it was it was something I, I I sort of wanted to imitate what I thought a really great writer did to try to to try to get that uh, feel. Over time, um, you know, what I learned I think about writing is, um, you know, it's about being as open and as inquisitive as you can be about a topic, going as deep as you can with you know within a within a certain timeline because deadlines always loom um, going as deeply as you can uh, and then trying to, you know, organize and structure your thinking in a way that will explain what you've learned. So there's a lot, you know, for me that goes into writing that isn't the actual writing part. It's just, you know, uh, accumulating information, uh, thinking about it, uh, structuring it and then trying to make sense of it. And yes, writing is hard, um, you know, but, but for me, it's the thing that I take the greatest pleasure in. I really am absolutely at my happiest uh, when I'm alone um, sitting and writing. Uh, it, I, hate, I hate puzzles. Actually, a lot of people love doing puzzles, but I get, this, I, I get uh, uh, pleasure in the, out of writing in the same way that I imagine people must get pleasure out of doing puzzles. Cause it feels like I'm building something. It feels like I'm completing a, you know, putting together a, a puzzle. Um, and, and go, going back to the idea of uh, the, the opening 
it's funny how an opening line uh, presents itself after you dove into a chapter. It, it might even just be writing a blog when you're trying to find the right hook, the right opening, and that will come to you at the strangest points in time. It it might be while you're hard at work in the blog, but it might come to you at three in the morning when you wake up and you understand you know, where you have to begin. Yeah. And I think for, for us, as we worked on hit refresh together and, and other various communications, you know, Greg, it's funny to hear you say your happiest moments are when you're alone. Some of my happiest moments on this project were when we were standing together in front of a computer screen, debating what the opening line should be, or what's that killer soundbite. And to me, part of the the love of writing for me is the brainstorm process and the bouncing ideas off of each other and being able to, you know, what I couldn't come up with alone, you know, with Greg's partnership, we got better and, and I, I hope vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I, I love I love the writing alone, but I also know if you're so into your own head, uh, you know, it, it could, you know, it can be dense. It can be something that you understand, but nobody else does. And so it is necessarily, uh, a collaborative process, uh, to, to do really good writing. You need feedback. Uh, you need to brainstorm with people, uh, because it, it will get a lot better through revision and through talking it out loud. All right. We'll come back to this, but Jill, I'm curious what the transition from Balmer to Nadella was like. Well, it was the literal transition was four days. So I'd say that was four days of um, absolute intensity. There's a photo taken of Satya Nadella, Bill Gates, and Steve Ballmer on stage for their first appearance after Satya was announced as CEO. And there's a, a bunch of employees in that picture in the background, and I'm one of them. And the photographer captured me in a moment laughing. And I always look at that picture and I was like, wow, I don't know how I was even standing at that time after that intense four-day period. You know, leading up to it, I I was really disappointed when Steve announced his retirement. He had, you know, I'd worked with him at that point for about three or four years, traveled dozens of countries with him for different communications events, and I'd really seen him make some bold decisions on the company. So when he announced he was retiring, I was really surprised. And and I asked him, I said, why now? And he, he was pretty enlightened about it. And he talked about how if he didn't change, the company never would. And that gave me really good insight on what that next leader um, who came in needed to do and how do they keep this old agenda going and build on it for this next generation of growth at the company, um, but also signal change. So when Satya joined, you know, one of the, the first priorities working with him was how do we take this person who's a consummate insider and share his outside perspective and share his leadership to help generate this new, um, this new approach to the company to help kickstart this new culture. So it was a, a incredible journey, both from a I'd say sleep standpoint, but more importantly, just you know having a, a front row ticket and and a role in shaping that time for the company. So how long from uh, February four, two thousand fourteen, was the day you were on stage with uh, when when Satya was 
announced as a new CEO. Uh, fast forward to the point where the idea of the book was uh, hit refresh was born. What, what's the origin, origin story? Yeah, I'd probably say it was about two years into Satya's tenure. Um, what's interesting is at, at that point in time, there had been a number of different uh, press articles about the starting to see the change at the company and how the company's on the move. And our customers and partners started to see it. And that became a top of mind topic as um, Satya traveled to meet with different people around the world. Bill said, they're curious, like, how are you doing it? What's the change happening? You know, we were approached by different organizations to do various case studies and tell the inside story. And we had a, a good conversation and said, if we're going to if we're going to do this and tell the story, we should be the ones that tell it. And it's not a speech or an interview. It's something in-depth and thoughtful and meaningful. Um, and that's what started the process. And uh, the, the, the big decision to make it happen, as we said, if we're going to do this, we need to bring on a, a full-time uh, writer to lead this work. And then Greg joined the team and we were off to the races. From the outside, it looks like uh, Satya's orchestrated a shift to a growth mindset as a culture. Is that a fair observation? It is. It, it, we've used the term um, growth mindset um, based off the book by Carol Dweck, Mindset, that uh, well, you know, first was given to Satya by his wife, actually. And that definitely influenced um, his thinking on, on where we needed to take the company. But it's also very reflective, I'd say, of who he is. He speaks all the time about his hunger for learning, his thirst for knowledge. And when we looked at the company's culture, um, we did this exercise of trying to understand, you know, where are we today and where do we want to go? And the phrase that typified it all was, you know, today we're a bunch of know-it-alls and how do we transform to be a group who wants to learn it all? And that growth mindset really typified that transformation and um, helped shape not only the, the words and the communications around the culture, but actually things that are getting done in the company and new initiatives. So I think it was one of those um, moments that the company got it right of balancing not just what we say, but what we do together. So the audience for this podcast is primarily educators, and they'll be very familiar with the term growth mindset. They might be curious about some of the specific ways in which Satya attempted to incorporate a growth mindset into the culture. What Can you give us any specific examples of how things were different that signaled that a growth mindset was a priority? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I'd say one of the things that has happened in the company since um, Satya joined is our focus on accessibility. And the company has long cared about um, building technology for people with disabilities. And Satya really shared his personal journey. He has a, a son with special needs and basically painted this picture for if our mission is to empower every person on the planet, that means every person. And how do we think about building technology that serves people um, in, in different ways? And there's a number of different uh, projects that have come out of that work from seeing AI, an app where you know somebody who's visually impaired could use to, to read signs um, 
in a store or a menu. So I'd say that's one area where the company said, hey, we're not just about technology for technology's sake, but how do we help and grow in different ways? You know, from a communication standpoint, um, Sati has been very thoughtful about how he reinforces these themes in what he says over and over and over again, which I think is the key for any any leader. And one of the things he does is he said, you know, everybody's got to have a growth mindset, including including me. And about every month, he records a video of all the things he learned that month um, that he learned from wow, reading, from customer from an employee sometimes they're humorous sometimes they're they're fairly deep um, but it's just a way for him to model it and I think that's a really important lesson for any leader of if you're telling your your employees or, or your students um, to have something or to do something how do you model that yourself and he's done a really really great job in doing that I've noticed uh, my last couple trips to campus that even the employee badges talk about lifelong learning. So there, there does seem to be a real focus on um, lifelong learning, uh, both as employees, but also enabling it for customers. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the key things. And it's also a differentiator for university hires. One of the things the company finds is is people want to join Microsoft out of um, universities because they want to keep that that learning and that education going, that it doesn't stop once they leave university. So it's become an interesting value prop for candidates as well. Greg, uh, you and I have had the chance to spend some time with Bill Gates, and I would call him one of the great tech optimists. I and mean, he, he really does have a, a great sense of the ways in which technology has and will make things better for people. Do you see that same attribute in Satya? I, I do. Um, you know, I, I got to work with, uh, with all three of Microsoft CEOs, Bill and Steve and, uh, and Satya. And I think that's, really, you know, sort of a hallmark of all three of them. Um, uh, you know, I, um, I, I've worked with, uh, a guy named Steve Gleason, as Jill was talking earlier about, uh, you know, accessibility, making technology, uh, you know, more accessible. Um, Steve Gleason, uh, played for the, uh, NFL New Orleans Saints, uh, got ALS, and uh, so I'm writing a little bit about him and his experience. And he he writes that technology, you know, has been a cure for him, you know, for him, if not for some of the technology that we built that makes it possible for him to speak and to drive his wheelchair using his eyes. You know, he said, I would be dead if it, it was if it wasn't for that. And, you know, as we write about in the book, um, you know, Satya and his wife Anu have uh, a child um, uh, who uh, who is in a wheelchair, and uh, uh, and I think you know from Satya's perspective, technology is is something uh, that you know is so critical to uh, people living with uh, with disabilities, but is also so critical to you know, finding a cure for cancer and malaria. Uh, and that's where he and Bill are so, are so joined, uh, you know, in, in their vision that, that technology, um, you know, will, will help those who most need it. it. It does seem increasingly clear that 
the technology, this combination of artificial intelligence and and big data and enabling technologies like robotics are likely to produce waves of of job dislocation. Uh, so. Can technology both uh, boost inclusion and be disruptive? Do you see both of those in our future? Yeah, it's, you know, I think in some ways this is the biggest question facing mankind right now. Uh, and that is, you know, we, we, are, um, we are transitioning into a new industrial age, you know, just as we did, you know, from agrarian to industrial and, and, uh, and from industrial to this information, uh, society, um, you know, the, the next big transformation is the role of, of data, you know, sensors will be on everything. Those sensors are going to collect data. The data will go into the cloud. Cognitive services will, uh, uh, you know, will analyze and provide us with, uh, with, with insights, Robots will take, you know, will take that machine learning and uh, and increasingly do uh, things faster and better than 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 some humans. But I think it's been overstated uh, that, you know, the, I think the hand wringing to some degree has been overstated in terms of what the uh, the technology will mean in terms of, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, losing their jobs. There will certainly be, as there were in previous uh, industrial revolutions, uh, people getting new at, you know, different types of education, different types of training and different types of jobs. Um, I'm actually working on a, a book right now with uh, with our chief technology officer in which we're uh, going into rural areas, going into the Rust Belt, going and, and talking to low skill and mid skill workers, farmers, uh, you know, people running nursing homes uh, and, and really trying to imagine what the future looks like uh, for them. Uh, you know the cashiers. You know what will what will they do as as uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, robots, uh, machines. You know take on more of those. And you know it, it's our firm belief that that these technologies will augment. Um, and uh, you know and 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 likely lead to greater surplus. So you know a cashier may not continue being the cashier at the at the you know at the uh, at, at the local supermarket, uh, but that cashier may become someone who helps to train uh, artificial intelligence. Remember, our artificial intelligence has to be trained by you know to to begin with. You have to be able to label the data. You have to be able to. Uh, structure the data, um, and these are these are skills that um, you know are are not necessarily a graduate degree or a PhD. These are people who uh, uh, you know, certainly need to graduate high school. Certainly need some some post secondary uh, education. But uh, you know the future of 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 AI and and technology will require uh, you know. Um, uh, human interaction, human training, uh, human leadership, human judgment. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of optimism about it, but you also have to be very mindful uh, about it because we're in a time of change. Um, I, I appreciate your commitment to, to civic infrastructure and both your time at, at Microsoft and at the Gates Foundation 
Um, and, and in between, uh, you've worked on building civic engagement and um, avenues for people to become informed and engaged in the, in the life of the community. And it, it strikes me that that is uh, becoming more and more important. I see communities facing new and challenging issues, including job displacement and income inequality and, you know, new and complicated uh, topics like uh, autonomous vehicles. So did, did, the, did this, the process of this writing the book help you think about um, civic infrastructure and the sort of engagement that we need to help communities be successful in the future? Well, uh, you know, now you're going to take me from optimism to not as much optimism. Um, uh, I care a great deal about uh, civic engagement. And I think, you know, the, my, my time as a, a journalist and a editor and a publisher in various uh, you know, news operations over the years, I, you know, I just fundamentally believe in you know, the importance of information and transparency and, uh, and communities engaging on, on that information. Um, you know, I think we're not doing a very good job of it. Um, you know, in a time when media is so plentiful, you know, we seem to be retreating increasingly into our own little silos and, um, you know, and if not in our silos <laughs> being attacked by, uh, you know, uh, Russian bots, I guess. So um, it's a it, it's a very, very big question. And, I, you know, um, w- we tend to get, you know, very upset about, you know, the direction of the country or the direction of our community or of a school district. Uh, but we are still in a democracy and it is still we the people. Um and so I, I think we, the people, have to take on uh, more responsibility and care a lot more about what's happening in our community. And, uh, and, and that means having a responsibility to inform yourself, um, you know, go out of your way to read and empathize. That's an important part of this book is about empathy and, and, and trying to empathize with other communities and then go do something about it. Um, so, so yeah. I, I mentioned I was in Tulsa this week with uh, Impact Tulsa, a great collective impact organization, and and uh, mentioned in a big community meeting that um, getting together for community conversations is uh, is hard work, but it's the best that we know how to do to. Uh, to deal with the changes that are coming at us. So I, I am encouraged by uh, many of the things that I've seen in, in your home state about uh, educators and, and nonprofit organizations working together in uh, committed ways to uh, build a foundation for the future. Good. Uh, Jill, when you see a company like Microsoft uh, becoming more AI centric, I, I guess you could say the same about uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon. Um, do, do you see now that you've you've stepped outside of Microsoft? Do you see the the evolution of machine intelligence? Is that going to increase the role of the the tech giants in our society? And 
how do you feel about that now? Yeah, the, the longer I'm away from the company, I think the more I appreciate the company. And what I mean by that is I think increasingly technology companies will have a greater influence in our daily lives, in um, how society forms for many generations. And the decisions that these companies are making now will impact our grandkids' grandkids. And when I think about that, I think, what's the motivation behind them? Like, what are their values? What are the principles by which they stand for? How do they care about things like privacy and security? Um, how do they think about um, building things in ways that uh, bring people together, not create uh, more of a, a divide economically? And um, so I think about, like, what are the who are these companies? What makes them tick? What motivates them? And coming from inside of Microsoft and seeing the leaders for you know nearly a decade in my experience there toil with these hard problems with such a, a high degree of integrity and a high degree of empathy, um, I feel better about, about the company. Um, when I step back and look at the industry, not having that type of purview into other major tech companies, it just makes me pause and say any company now looking to build, you know, technology for the future and their own digital transformation, be wise, be careful, be thoughtful. Like who is that technology partner you want to work with and what are the values that drive them and are behind Let's, it? Let's uh, close with a few reflections on uh, the the process of writing and and then a couple thoughts on on teaching writing. Um Greg, when, when you think about this, um, you, you probably had multiple projects going on. How, how did you manage the, the process of uh, developing this book along with a bunch of other projects? Well, I was very fortunate, actually, to, to have this, uh, you know, the, at the time of writing the book, having that as my primary focus. Um, you know, as, as Jill was pointing out, I, I had the luxury, really, of, of being able to devote four to six hours a day, oftentimes seven days a week, uh, simply because I, I wanted to keep going. Um, you know, I, uh, during the various times when I have written while also trying to juggle other projects, you know, the, the key for me uh, is to block uh, good chunks of time for, for writing. I'm just not a very good transactional writer. In other words, I can't do a conference call and go write for 10 minutes and then, you know, go work on an email and then go to a meeting. Um, I really need long periods of time uh, because I, I write and research um, sort of simultaneously. So a, as I'm writing, I'll, ha I'll, I'll have a question about something and I'll go off and do some, some reading on it. So having long stretches of time to, uh, to write are, are important. So if you're juggling things, you know, it, it's, it is possible to write and juggle. It's just, uh, for, for me, I need, you know, I need to, to schedule myself, uh, for, for writing blocks. One thing that's changed, uh, during your career is the ability and prevalence of writing, uh, collaboratively. And that may be through um, uh, live docs. People might use um, Google Docs or Office 365 where you're actually co-authoring um, in real time with people around the world. What, 
uh, how has your writing changed in in that regard when you're writing a book with and about someone like Satya and and have a collaborator like Jill? Yeah, um, I am I am not the best commercial for. Um, uh, you know, Google Docs and and live uh, live collaboration. For me, the collaboration comes. Uh, you know what Jill and I w- would do is go. You know, we sat down uh, for you know two hour blocks with Satya and had you know a, a very in depth interview where we came prepared. We knew what we wanted to talk about, and so the, the greatest collaboration for me were those live conversations uh, where. Um, you know, I was able to, you know, to record that I was able to take, you know, extensive notes. Um, and then in the editing process, once something is written, um, you know, I, I am a big fan of, of what Microsoft Word enables, which is, uh, you know, to comment, uh, to redline, uh, to go back and forth over email. So I guess I'm maybe a little bit of a relic of, of that edit you know that editing process involving you know word and uh and email and and to some extent using a, a live skype call where you can you know share uh share the screen and kind of read and and talk about it um i've never really understood how people uh compose uh to, to me it'd be very hard to compose collaboratively but i know there are people that uh uh, that do that very well. My wife does that very well. She's a, a, a law school professor. No, it's it, it's interesting, Greg. I, I would say um, at least half of what uh, we publish on Getting Smart is um, is written collaboratively. Um, and so I've I, I've got fifteen collaborative docs on my desktop right now and in some cases i'm taking the lead in some cases i'm taking an editing role um but we write every day all day in this new sort of collaborative way and it is it's taken a while for an old guy like me to uh to get used to it but now i i have a hard time imagining uh writing in in another that'll way. be my growth mindset uh, yeah i've got a, I've got a- yeah, I think you put, you put your finger on what really works. It's identifying when you're in a writing collaborative process, which who's got which role. Um, and I fear I've ended up in too many processes where everybody thinks they're primary author and you're literally editing ideas versus words. So just getting clear on the essence of the idea and then who's author, who's reviewer to me is what makes that whole process go and work. And Jill, any um, tips on editing? How do you think about that process? It's funny. Greg shared um, a clip with me about how he hates (laughs) his work being edited um, whenever (laughs) I would edit his work. You know, I think for me, the, the thing that was most helpful in the process was to sit down and first ask why and... Uh, to learn, okay, what what are we actually trying to achieve with this passage or with this story? It came across to me in this way, but I think you might have meant it in a different way. So understanding that piece um, was 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 the primary piece. I'd say the actual the editing the words. What I found was so important was to get 
you know, I offer one perspective just based on my life experiences, what, you know, how I've been educated, how I've experienced the world. Um, but in a book like Hit Refresh or anything that that has depth and meaning talking about different um, societal issues, getting a broader set of eyes on that is so important. So, you know, in the process of the final edit pass for Hit Refresh, we had a number of different people read it through their own life journey, whether it was people who might have had a disability or people from other countries, um, people inside the company and outside the company, because that's how we uh, found the right nuances in the work to, to change it and make it more approachable and understandable by, by a wider audience. So I would love to have both of you comment on um, advice for secondary school teachers in helping um, teenagers become better writers, better communicators. Any, any tips there? Well, my, I, I guess the um, thing that I appreciated most watching my own kids go through uh, writing during that time, my daughter uh, had a teacher that employed the idea of what she called brave writing. And what she meant by brave writing is um, don't let all of the rules and strictures of writing get in the way or limit. Just go for it. Um, you know, uh, don't second guess, um, you know, really just pour it out. Let, you know, let it go. Uh, it's always easy to go back and, and refine and edit and get and get comments and that kind of thing. But I think. Uh, one of the re you know one reason why people you know might find writing hard or, or not enjoy writing in some cases is yeah they've been told so many rules and you know this isn't good or that's not good like just let it go you are uh, I, I believe everyone is a is a writer and I believe everyone is an author um, and so you know my my main advice is. Um, you know, is, is to be very, very encouraging, let people, you know, let people write, be encouraging to them. And then, you know, find, find the moments and find the opportunities to help them refine. I, I, I love, uh, I want to note the, the bookend sort of advice that you've given, because you learned to be a writer in part by repeating other people's opening lines, right? So there was a discipline that you had about studying other people's writing and then this closing thought on encouraging people to write and, uh, you know, to write freely, to write often. And that combination of, uh, of, a, of a discipline study of good writers and then the, the freedom uh, and the encouragement to write freely and openly is uh, a great, seems like great advice. Bill, what um, any tips you would add for teaching writing, becoming a yeah. great communicator? There, there's two things that I found incredibly valuable when I was when I was in high school learning learning to write. The first was from my creative writing teacher, Doctor uh, Mr. Catanelli. And he, I remember saying, I was working on a fictional piece saying, I don't have any ideas. I can't think of anything. I don't have a good story to write. And, you know, he basically said, just don't let the facts get in the way of the truth. And he said, you're, you're making something up, just start and let it fly. And it, you know, along Greg's lines, it wasn't thinking about the, 
the rules, so to speak, but it was lacking the idea that was preventing me from getting started. And that just freed me up. That advice freed me up to just start typing and getting some characters on the page. And then, you know, after after a, a bit of work to step back and say, hey, where, where can the story really go? I'd say the second piece is the way that I have found more of a, a voice and a style in writing nonfiction is through journaling. And there's been people in my life who have encouraged me since grade school to keep a journal in a very honest journal, exploring not just what happened, but what did I feel? What did I think? What did I wish I said? What do I wish I felt right now? And that process of journaling uh, an authentic experience um, through decades of my life has been, um, I'd say, transformative in in a number of ways. So I always encourage um, young people to keep a journal. It's great to um, not only build their writing skills and their storytelling skills, because it's so innate to to their experience, but it's also a way to um, reflect on your on your life journey and help shape what the next chapters are. That's a uh, terrific advice. Um, Greg Shaw and Jill Tracy Nichols helped Sachin Nadella write Hit Refresh, the quest to rediscover Microsoft's soul and imagine a better future for everyone. Uh, Jill, where can people learn more about you and your work online? Yeah, I'm at um, www.tracygroup.com. Great. And uh, Greg, where can we uh, find more of your writing? Uh, I don't know. Go to Bing and uh, <laughs> type in my name. I, I, I don't know. Uh, you go to LinkedIn as well. But I, Tom, I do want to say uh, uh, thank you and, and thank you for your lifelong uh, leadership and, and commitment to improving education for everyone in this country. Well, it... Uh it's it's been a journey and i i loved uh, the time that we overlapped at uh, the gates foundation and and appreciate the contribution that uh, you you guys have both made in uh, this book and more broadly and thanks for being on the podcast thank you thanks so much for having us A big thanks to Greg and Jill for speaking with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss out on any other future content. And after you hit subscribe, head on over to gettingsmart.com to learn more about all things innovations and learning. Our site offers a rich index of resources and content to support your professional learning and helps us move the needle toward the future of learning. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Caroline and Jessica signing off. (laughs) 